running recently. It's so much running. Although it's a loose term, it's more jogging. But you like to, you kind of, it's not fast, it's not that far, but you like to think that you're improving. Yeah. So if you're going out a little bit, whatever it is that's improving, you want to think something's improving or changing. Um, I, I went out for a run yesterday and I was overtaken by a tractor. I tell you what, tractors can go fast. No, 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 it wasn't going fast. Oh. <laughs> there was, it was, it was a tractor race. Oh, no, a tractor, it was called a tractor race, but there were a hundred tractors. Oh, so wow. a hundred, you, you imagine a hundred tractors in a line, they're not going fast at all. And so I'm just plodding along and this tractor overtook me and I suddenly thought, that's a really bad sign. I mean, I must almost be walking. So I thought, well, I just go a little bit faster. But then I think the tractor caught on to what was going on here. So he started speeding off a little bit. So I was almost having a mini race with a tractor within a race. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Why were there so many tractors just doing a race? They're raising money and awareness for Thames Valley Hospice. So it was, it was in aid of a great appeal, a great cause. It was wonderful. But it was just... I ended up having a mini race with the train. It's just quite demoralizing because you like to think you're you're improving. Not that I'm out there thinking I'm the fastest person in the world, but you like to think you're getting somewhere. And when this sort of tractor crawls past you, you just think, why am I doing this? Yeah, but, uh, but the thing is with tractors is that I think that they're lying a lot of the time. <laughs> they actually can go really fast. I once drove a tractor on my in-law's farm. Did you? Before I went, my father-in-law said, nothing will stop this tractor apart from a very, very large tree. <laughs> no building, no ditch. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it can go quite fast. So I was like, okay. <laughs> just And just jumped in and off I went. And yeah, I was bombing around at like 40 miles an hour. It was great. Handbrake turns. It was awesome. No, well, not quite. Uh, but yeah, I did survive. It was, it was cool. But they can go really fast. They just don't. I'd love to see a tractor doing a handbrake turn. Um, no, but uh, it, to make it clear, this tractor was in a parade of 100. It was barely moving. And yet it suddenly, when I did the marathon long, long time ago, I was overtaken by, by two rhinoceroses. And at the time, that was quite deflating. But I was a good four hours in, so I didn't really care. I, everything was quite surreal. I didn't know what was real or not. But just, I don't know, it made me, I don't know, it made me kind of think that maybe I should give it up. Or run faster. One of the, but I was also kind of thinking, if you're a professional athlete, you've got to get up and do that every day, not not be overtaken by a tractor. But you've got to train. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to you've got to train. You've got to be. Were you were you did you jump out of bed and think I cannot wait to train today, or did you need someone giving you a bit of a kick? Oh, I think that's a tough question. I think it just depends on. And it also depended on what I was due to do that day. So if it was running based, ah. <laughs> I did not want to go to training. Depended on just kind of how fresh I was feeling, how early the start was. Sometimes we start at 7 a.m., other times we start at 10. I don't know, really. It, it varied kind of quite significantly. But all in all, I, I, I wanted to be doing it. But, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you need somebody to make sure that you're doing it correctly you're doing the right amount it's very easy to think well eight's pretty much 10 and then on the next well seven's pretty much eight which is pretty much 10 <laughs> before you know it you're just sitting having a cup of tea your know, training's going well <laughs> so you just rationalize things in your head a bit but there are certain things that you have to do by yourself just you know for time purposes there's so much to fit into the day you end up doing it at home or whatever it is so it, yeah I don't know I Look, I wasn't somebody who absolutely loved training. I loved strength training. I loved weights. That was something I was really good at. 
So I enjoyed that and I loved being on the court. Uh, but a lot of the fitness endurance, speed endurance stuff was, uh, yeah, I'd class it as a drag. Because I'd like to think that if I had a full-time personal trainer that largely the players on tour have at, at the top of the game, then it would be amazing. Someone to say, get up, do this, run there, come back, do this again, don't stop it, amazing. But to actually have to motivate yourself, and there's a number of players on the on the lower tours, on the smaller tours, who cannot afford someone to travel with them. So to find that motivation, to get up every day and do everything they need, I think that's actually quite difficult. Oh, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And even people with the best will in the world find it incredibly difficult. Uh, and actually, sometimes at the lower levels, it's amazing some of the basics that are missed, I think, from an outsider's perspective. But when you're in it, you can understand. You know, people are tired. That You also need to rest, right? We've learned in recent times that rest is a really important thing. And that needs to be worked in as well. So when you're coming up the rankings and when you're young, actually knowing your body, so knowing when you need to rest, whether an injury is bad, whether you can push more, whether you really are that tired or you just need to get going or whatever it is, that can be really difficult. And actually sometimes when you're young, if you're a teenager, your coach and f physical trainer will know that better than you. And so we have these things called the, the uh, RPEs, which is the received... No, the rate of perceived exertion. Sorry, received what? No, the rate <laughs> of perceived exertion, which is basically after a session or a match or anything, you do all these scores and you write, you basically say how hard do you think that effort was? And that has been shown to be pretty much the most accurate information we can use with athletes that are adults and that understand their bodies. But can't you lie? Can't you can't you say, "Oh yeah, that was great. I did so well there." And then it's then it's pointless. Yeah, of course you can, but it's very I think, you know, you can win a match 2 and 2 and it could be really difficult in terms of the effort and you could win a match 4 in the third, but everybody was just kind of serving, so you didn't really do much running. It was it was just a bit long, that's all. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it is important to understand as I say particularly the really experienced athletes, no one knows Roger Federer's body better than he does. The same with all of the top players, Simona Halep, everybody, they know better. And the coaches and team will take a guide from and a steer from them. But as I say, when you're coaching kind of 15, 16 year olds, doesn't matter how good they are. Somebody like Coco Goff does not understand her body because you haven't reached your limits. You haven't surpassed your limits. You haven't done this. You have, it's that lack of experience. So you can be very, very bad at knowing when to stop and when to push and whether you actually do just need the afternoon off and that sort of thing. So you do need your team to step in a bit more. So for a, a Coco Golf, that kind of age, this is the most important time because these are the years when you're still growing and developing and understanding your body. And if you wreck it now, then you're going to get to a stage when you're, I don't know, early, mid-20s and everything's going to be breaking down. Yeah, and you need people around you to be able to hold you back and and tell you what, kind of where the lines are. And, and it's all trial and error. And unfortunately, you're going to get it wrong. Look at Bianca Andreescu. Got it wrong a couple of times. The first injury, she played far too much through the pain in Miami. I mean, going to Miami after winning Indian Wells last year was almost madness. Felt like her arm was falling off. And then coming back too early again. So, yes, she's made these mistakes because ultimately everything is her responsibility. But she's young. She's never played at this level before. She didn't know. And she needed somebody to step in and say no. But... 
to find somebody who knows you well enough and understands also the top demands of tennis is incredibly difficult. You're talking about a very small amount of people who are capable of doing that job. And then they need to know you really well. So they need to have been working with you for at least a year to understand how your body works. So you can't really blame her team, as in they've made mistakes as well. Uh, but it's not just her. Denis Shapovalov probably overplayed a little bit in terms of the tournament schedule. You could uh, so I, some people have accused Dominic Team of doing that in recent years uh, as well. Other players, you think, don't play enough. People always saying, talking about Serena right now, saying she should play more tournaments. The same with Federer, same with training, everything like that. So I find it really fascinating in tennis because there are so many different ways of doing things. We have no idea what Djokovic does in terms of his training on a daily basis. We don't know how many hours, how intense. We know he does you know, a lot of stretching. He's insanely flexible. But his training level is going to be completely different to that of Federer's or to that of Nadal's or to Murray's or to Serena's, to Halep's. Everybody has it so tailored to them once they get towards their late 20s and they're kind of very experienced because they know what works for them. And uh, and I think that's just something that the young kids need to, you need to kind of go through it and just hope that the mistakes aren't too costly. And unfortunately for somebody like an Andreescu, they, it has been kind of large chunks of time she's had out. You have to obviously look at the the individuals but would you say then largely when you're younger there's a there's a format to follow taking into consideration the the person you're working with but there is a there is a certain structure it's only when you get later in life that it's it's more specific because there's different things needed from the body yeah I think there's a certain I, I agree with you that I think there's a certain structure in terms of the physical demands of we know what 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds are kind of capable of in general, just kind of physically. And obviously you do know the player a bit. Uh, more, I think, for teenagers, the, the real unknown lies in the mentality and the emotional stability around being an elite athlete. So it's not, you know, so this whole, it's not an argument, but this whole discussion going on about the age eligibility rule, particularly for Coco Goff, um, people saying she's capable of it physically she can do it mentally she can do it and emotionally she can do it she can play these matches and and I've always argued and I know we talked about this after Wimbledon last year but yes she might be able to do that but there are other things that people are missing the bits that you don't see I understand that she's able to deliver on the matches but the bits that you don't see in terms of the the training requirements the stress that goes through her body the jet lag the travel the lack of schooling the lack of friends her age you know all of those pieces the the pressures the the agents meetings the money well you need to do this tournament because that's where the money's going to be and the sponsors and I mean it, it, it's never ending in terms of the stresses on her and actually that could all mean that she would walk onto the court be flat be tired be unmotivated similar to what we saw Zverev like at the beginning of last year I think all of that stuff he basically couldn't play he said, I've split up with my girlfriend. The agent stuff's a nightmare. I can't do, like, I've got all these deals to sort out. I have so much stress that I walk out on court and I'm just totally lost. I don't know what I'm doing. And you, that could, you don't want to do that to, to somebody that young. We hated seeing Zverev in that situation and you wouldn't want to see Coco Goff there either. So um, yeah, th th there is so much more to consider than you know, we just turn on the TV and see them playing on a court that looks very much the same as a different court they played on last week in a, on a totally different continent. And we don't see everything else that goes into it, but th actually that's where the difficulty lies. So in terms of the team making decisions, I think for the young players, they need to take it 
be really careful with uh, the emotional part of it and the stresses and pressures that way to make sure they can deal with it. But essentially with Andriescu, if you said to her, okay, you could not have these problems with your knee, your body would stay together, but you're not going to be a Masters winner, you're not going to win a Premier Mandatory, sorry, winning Indian Wells, and you're not going to win the US Open, does she swap it? Does she swap what she's got for where she is now? Well, I think the, there's only one person to ask in that situation, and that is Juan Martín del Potro. And you ask him, you have had any number of injuries. Now, I don't think his injuries have necessarily come because he overplayed and overtrained. But he is somebody who has a Grand Slam. He has some big titles. He's had wins over, I think, everybody. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he's achieved a lot. Uh, and if you only watch tennis at the Olympics, you think he's been smashing it for years. <laughs> <laughs> he's got Olympic medals. He's got so much going for him, right? But he unfortunately has had a huge amount of time out of his tennis career. I mean, his, his career has ultimately been decimated uh, because of his injuries. So you could say, I would, it'd be interesting would you ask if you ever get to interview him again ask him would you give up that grand slam to have had a longer uh run at it and actually have had more than a year before you got seriously injured i, I wonder what he'd say would he give it up that u.s open title it's uh it's a you will always be a grand slam winner and and one of yeah. very few on the men's side in recent years to have broken up the big three, the big four, however you want to look at them. So it's a, as someone I think who's being handled, managed very well is Felix Ogialiassim. He's only 19, who's been around for a couple of years. I mean, physically, he looks looks like he's ready. And, and mentally, he's got a very wise head when you speak to him on his shoulders. He sounds a lot older than he is. Now, I, I, and I know you shouldn't read too much into social media because it's a dangerous place to go. But he recently made the final of, of Marseille. I think that was his fifth final. And he lost to Sitsabas. And obviously, he's devastated at the end, as you would be. You got to the final of an event. But on social media, people started saying, oh, he's such a disappointment. Five finals, hasn't won a title. I'm thinking... Hang on a second. He's not even 20. I know there's always exceptions to the rule, but he is 19 and he's doing what he's doing. Is he disappointing? <laughs> is he disappointing you, Naomi? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what is wrong with people? I think I say this in every episode. There comes a point where all all I can think is, what is wrong with people? People are idiots. <laughs> what do you... I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy. Look, but people don't need to panic potential never changes if you're young and you have potential okay it starts to get less and less once you get into your 30s if you haven't fulfilled your potential your chances of fulfilling it in your 30s become lower uh but if you're, if you're young and you have the potential it's still there you might go off track for a while you might just slow down on the right track for a while you might completely stop citing ash barty over here but you still have the potential that if you do the things that are required and you can look to fulfill your potential, you will be fine. So, I mean, this is kind of hilarious. Like, he's still a teenager. And, okay, Nadal won lots of titles as a teenager. So how dare he not be as good as Nadal? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And also, with the whole potential never changes thing, can I go back to an episode we did at the back end of last year? Christian Garin, Chile, wake up. Your boy, you knew he had potential when he was a world-class junior. He just, he was on the right track. He just slowed down. But I'm telling you, he's won the title <laughs> 
off he goes like you know don't worry about it you can all because we had that conversation didn't we when I was in Chile on my honeymoon and talking to people and they were saying ah he could have been good and I was thinking no 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 (laughs) he still can be real Firstly, he's already very good. <laughs> you spent 80% but, of your honeymoon bigging up Christian Garin I around know, South America. Ben knows more about Christian Garin than any other player <laughs> on the tour now. He knows everything about him. Uh, so, yeah, but it's kind of, look, it's a similar thing. So I hope that the Canadian fans who probably, you know, two years ago were, of course, ecstatic at their situation. I hope they are still ecstatic at their situation because as far as being a Canadian tennis fan goes, you got it pretty good, guys. Someone who I think has definitely fulfilled his potential is Roger Federer. <laughs> I don't <Well>. think... <laughs> oh, can you imagine if he hasn't? <laughs> okay, I mean, if, yeah, watch out, everybody. But he... And he's also someone who has done really well at managing his body, managing his schedule. He only had his first major injury, what was it, 2016 or something, with, with the knees, getting his... One of the twins, both of them out the bath. And that was like the first time he'd been sidelined. Now he's sidelined again. The right knee has undergone a little procedure. I thought it was good that he didn't say, I'm going to have it done. He just said, look, it's been done. And um, I'm out till hopefully back on the grass. But then I remember when the news broke that day, someone said to me, so is this the beginning of the end for Roger Federer? I mean, quite, <laughs> <laughs> and they said it in quite a dramatic way. And my first thought was, well, he's 38. You can't escape father time. So to be fair, if he hadn't had this injury, I'd still be thinking exactly the same, right? That he's going to get a few more niggles and he's 38 and it's it's getting tougher, but he can still play to an exceptional level. Yeah. When do you think we first heard about it being the beginning of the end for (laughs) Roger Federer? How many years ago was it? Well, it was definitely the last knee operation. Definitely the last knee operation. And then look how he storms back from that and wins Australia. And a long time, I think. A long. I mean, do you think it's the beginning of the end? It's been the longest <laughs> retirement ever. <laughs> Without somebody ever saying they want to retire. Everybody, you know, it's like when you're at work and uh, you could imagine somebody where they kind of want, want you to go. It's like, look, you've been here a while. You're past your best. <laughs> and everyone's just saying, oh, when's the retirement? When's the retirement? You know, when's the party? They throw you a retirement party and you think, oh, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> it's almost like that. You've got so many people being like, but surely, I mean, surely, surely, surely you're actually not going to continue. Oh, no. Okay, great. Fine. <laughs> He's still a top class player. But in terms of timing, it's it's sensible and clever from his point of view because... At the age he is now, we know for these big guys, it's about the biggest of titles, which is Grand Slam titles. He's only one clear of Nadal. If you're going to be the, the greatest of all time, it's it's going to start in that column of, of Grand Slam titles. So he doesn't need another Indian Wells or another Miami. or He's not... Uh, He's not going to win the French Open again. I'm just going to put it out there now. He's not going to win the French Open again. So so <laughs> not a problem missing that. And then he comes back, hopefully all being well, maybe a little bit undercooked, probably at Haller ahead of Wimbledon. I mean, it, I don't know. It just, to me, seems really sensible. Yeah, it's definitely the right time of year for him, for, for sure. Uh, if he's going to miss a chunk of the year, clay season's the, the time to do it. So hopefully it all is sorted and he'll be back kind of as we expect him to be do you know what I found really interesting actually and this is a, a quite a good insight into the tour because yeah we see some interaction between the top guys and most of the time when 
there is any sort of interaction between the top guys, it's weirdly through press conferences. It's like, well, Novak Djokovic said to you, said about you, Roger, that you're you're just phenomenal. You're this amazing brand, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I mean, what do you say to that? And Roger says, well, thank you very much, Novak. He's a great fighter. And, you know, I always enjoy our match. You know, the, the sort of deal. Actually, they don't communicate that often when they're at tournaments. They have press things to do. But people do tend to mind their own business. They'll say hi and stuff when they walk past and they might catch up with each other's team and that sort of thing. But look, it's not like they're having lunch together, let's be honest. And I thought it was quite interesting because Novak talked about Roger's injury, his knee, and he said, oh, well, we all knew that he was injured a bit in, in Australia, but we, we didn't know what it was. If you think, like, it's quite an extraordinary thing. You would imagine it's quite a small world. And even if there are rumours, somebody would have seen him getting some treatment on this or they call in a specialist about this. Do you know what I mean? But I just found that a really interesting insight because it does just demonstrate that people just do their own things. And sometimes people just operate within their own team. I mean, I think Marion Bartley was saying to you uh, once before about Maria Sharapova, how she just basically had not spoken to anyone at all. And it was only when she came back after the drugs ban that she was maybe a little bit more humble and a little bit more willing to speak to other people on the tour. She just spoke to her team, spoke to the organisers, and she said, thank you, after <laughs> at the end of a match. That was about it. I don't think I'd be capable of... Of not talking to people. (laughs) (laughs) Might not surprise you. Um, (laughs) Like, so we would, if I was a professional tennis player, you never would have played doubles with me because I just would have talked. And you just, you'd be like, I want a moment, just on a process. I just would have been talking to you about anything and everything. I just, I can't imagine. It's like going to the office and not speaking to anyone or only speaking to people you have to. And yeah, but people do that though. I think people do that. Really? Just not you or me, <laughs> evidently. <laughs> I thought the other good insight was Djokovic confirming they've got a WhatsApp group. So mm. Federer, Djokovic and Nadal on a WhatsApp group. And it was great because they're in um, Dubai at the moment. And the question the question was asked, um, who's, who's the most active on the group? So I would assume it would be Djokovic. I just think he'd be the most active on the group. <laughs> and 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 maybe it was confirmed. What's the group called? Well, I didn't... I, I mean, I'd love to know what it's called. Can you imagine? We are the goats. It's going to be called goats or something. Do you think we it? are the goats? Uh, but but when he was asked who's the, who's the most talkative or who puts the most on, he didn't give an answer. So it makes me think it's him. Do you think out of the three of them it would be him? I think it would be I him. I genuinely... Honestly, it's great they've got a group and everything. But back to my previous point... I don't think they chat that much. I just don't <laughs> think this is an active group. You know, as in, we speak pretty much every day. And I have other groups that are active every single day. And then I have some groups that kind of pop up once a month, something happens and they might have a little chat about it or something in the news or have a little laugh at something. But in terms of actually talking about things, I've, I don't think much happens. Do you think it's like player council stuff? Yeah, I think it's anything important. It's did you see this email or... Oh, you know, Nick's been slagging us off again, <laughs> seeing as Acapulco's just about to start. Kiros has been piping up. Or, you know, I don't know. They'll probably just laugh at bits and pieces or that sort of thing. But And, and as I say, just news. You don't think they, they put on the group, Rafa, where's our invite to your wedding? Do you think that kind of message comes through? No, exactly. It's no. like at Queen's <laughs> last year, um, when you had that little man, because I know you were doing all, all of the Queen's media stuff, but you had the little man doing the interviews and he spoke to Andy Murray and he said to him, are you and Novak friends? And Andy said, well, no, we're not friends. I mean, we, we get on okay, but like, they, they, you know, they're not going to socialise. 
I, I think the thing it. about, especially Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, we put others in there, but they, and Djokovic said this, they have a lot, he, he didn't say the word friends, but he said we have a lot of respect for each other. And Nadal recently went with Federer to South Africa for his foundation to do a match. You know, I, I don't think they cannot, not have respect for each other and what the others have achieved in the game. Yeah, and I'm going to be a little bit cynical now, but we really see- <laughs> surprises me. Don't expect this from you at all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Come on. I didn't then. really need to say that, did I? Come on. <laughs> no, but they are. It, they're all at the back end of the careers. Look, I'm not hurrying up retirement, although sometimes I'm kind of like, oh. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. It's fine. But they are at the back end of their careers. You can see a bit of a change in attitude, particularly with Nadal and Federer in terms of um, it was all about, of course, winning. And now it's less about winning, more about the overall picture. Like we saw, we had this match in Africa between uh, Federer and Nadal. They're going to be doing business deals together. They all want each other to support the charities. Look, Fed, can you come and turn up for me here? I'll turn up for you there. Like... I think all of that stuff's going to be going on as well because particularly Federer and Nadal, I'm sorry, Novak fans, but particularly Federer and Nadal, they're very intertwined. You think of Federer, you think of Nadal. And that rivalry is is so strong. That branding is so strong. Uh, you know, remember the clay, half clay, half grass court match? That was, oh, what a moment. That sort of thing. They're going to be organising. And, and, and so I think that's what the WhatsApp group is for. And I don't, I, I personally, I have nothing to base this on. Don't believe it's particularly active. I mean, uh, what I'm basing it on is the fact that Novak said he didn't know what was wrong with Federer. He had no idea he'd had knee surgery or that his knee was bad. He yeah, just but he's not, he, he's not going to put that on it, is he? Why he's not? He's not going to put, oh, fellas, got a knee problem, going to have surgery, be out for a while. Because I, I don't think it'd be used for that, would it? Can you imagine? Be a bit weird. I, I think it's just very weird. I think the whole, I, think, <laughs> I just think it's very strange. <laughs> We've had a few emails this week and some questions um, coming through from the Tennis Podcast website. Uh, Karen got in touch. Uh, My my favourite part of Karen's email is at the end, but she said this week in an ITF in Glasgow, uh, Marie Benoit had got to the semi-finals with three retirements. She has not, did not have to finish a game. And I should say she went on to lose in the semi-final when she played the match. Shock. Um, <laughs> she says, I'm quite new to following tennis, but I presume this is a rare occurrence. That's a question out there. She said, love the podcast. You work really well together. She said, Naomi's understanding and knowledge of the tennis world is fascinating. Nothing about me. Says nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, she didn't say correct. Um, <laughs> it's just an interesting take. Did just say it was fascinating. But my favourite part of the email from Karen is at the end. Just thought she'd let us know. When I was a teenager, I got drunk on cider in the park with my friends. Oh, oh no, but that was because I mentioned my cider phase. Did you? Did I miss that? I don't remember that. When was your cider? <laughs> oh, did I talk to you about that in a private conversation? I think that maybe? was a private conversation. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> now it's out there. Now it's out there. I just love the way the email ended. Just when I was a teenager, I got drunk on cider in the park I'd, with my friends. Karen, thank you for that. Um, yes. Naomi, her understanding and knowledge, it is fascinating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> loose, loose it's, it's, it's loose but fascinating but the um getting to the semi-finals with three retirements what's what's the furthest you got in a tournament having not had to play oh you know it hasn't it just hasn't happened to me it is quite a rare thing to be honest uh well if you don't play any points you don't win any 
points, but I'm talking about points differently. Sorry. Let me clarify. If you don't play any points in a match, you don't win any points for your ranking. So you have to... Oh, so hang, hang on a second. So she gets the semi-final, but she'd still get the semi-final points. Yes, because they were retirements in the match. So she had played some of the match and then they right. retired. Okay. If okay. they, If all three of them, so first round, second round and quarterfinals... If all right. three of those matches had been withdrawals and there were no lucky losers because, once again, people are idiots and didn't sign in, then she, and she just got to the semi-finals without having played a point, she would not have earned any points for that. She wouldn't win the semi-final points. You have to have played a point. But you could, technically, play the very first point of your first round match. Right. Terribly upsetting. Rolls her ankle, has to withdraw then everything counts. So then the next match could be a retirement, the next match a retirement, the next match a retirement. You could find yourself in the final and you pick up all the points after that because you have played a point in the tournament. So she was as fresh as a daisy in the semi-final. And still lost. But, but at the same time, she hadn't played any matches. So sometimes being fresh is not a great thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially if you've been hanging around uh, all, all the time, just, just practicing. It's a bit rubbish. Sometimes... When it, if somebody pulls out of a match in the middle of it, most players will then go and practice or find somebody to play a practice set with because you want to be a bit kind of match tight. You can't really replicate a match. But yeah, it is uh, it is quite a rare occurrence. I've seen something similar happen uh, a few times, but it's just never happened to me. So, you know, get out the small violin for me. <laughs> never had any luck, did I? Can't oh, believe it. Nothing went my you. way. But you did enjoy cider, apparently, <laughs> did. As, as did Karen. Maybe that was the issue. The, the one... <laughs> Oh, see, the biggest problem now is that I've left it out there with no context. <laughs> and I think we're just going to move on so people can just keep it with a with a lack of... Uh, I don't like cider, that's all I'm going to say on the matter. We had a, a tweet from Priscilla saying, and this is brilliant because it was, it was two tweets. So the first tweet said, <laughs> why do some players seem to sniff their fingers a little bit after, after you look on your face, after <laughs> I just pulled a face. After, after a point ends, notices that Shapovalov does it a lot, and then the follow-up tweet was, "Well, they sort of blow on their fingers," which is very uh, different to sniffing right. their fingers to blowing on their fingers. I was thinking you might have been meaning that <laughs> because I don't think sniffing fingers is a thing. <laughs> It's all the way I've ever noticed. I mean, look, they have some weird ticks, but... Well, hang on, they're sniffing balls. We did a whole podcast on Dominika Sibulkova who could tell one make of ball for another by sniffing them. Yeah. Oh, people sniff balls. Yeah, if they open a new can for practice, people sniff balls. So, we, okay, so sniffing balls, not sniffing <laughs> fingers. Um, so, so the, que- <laughs> the question... I love that sniffing fingers is weirder than sniffing balls. <laughs> It's like, of course everybody sniffs balls. Why would you sniff fingers? Well, it depends what balls. <laughs> I'm guessing in the context of this conversation. Um, so so the question there would be, why would they blow on their fingers? Oh, that's just because of the sweat on the hand. They're just trying to dry it. So a bit of air movement <laughs> helps with that, really. Uh, but that's that's all they're doing. The more you blow on it, the drier it feels for about a second. Uh, then it starts sweating again. So it's just helpful when you grip the racket. Um, so if you've, yeah, if you kind of have the racket out of your hands, then the sweat from the back of your hand will run onto the palm of your hand, make it damp and slippery. So before each point, you kind of have to just blow a little bit to get a bit of a better grip. You don't need to sniff them. Don't sniff them. I feel really bad. Priscilla, have you been playing tennis and been sniffing your fingers, <laughs> thinking that this is the way for you to improve your game? <laughs> 
<laughs> because I hate to break it to you. I don't believe your forehand's going to be any better. <laughs> um, and we had, I feel like this is the, the listener section of the podcast. Uh, Betty got in touch. I think maybe she might be asking for some advice here because she's a tennis mum of a 10-year-old and she said it's not easy if he's playing a contest. I know it doesn't mean much, but just the ball it's speeding up a great rally how can I not react he's happy at the moment because they're indoors and it's winter so she's behind glass <laughs> so yeah. Betty is kept away from things she said I'm just worried about the summer you know she, am I going to have to wear a scarf because he gets quite angry at her whenever she whenever she reacts but I mean have have you ever had to tell a parent to calm down what can Betty do not to show her excitement for her son yeah a hundred percent I can understand uh, where your son's coming from and it's just it, it, <laughs> sorry Betty no support so, so, sorry Betty <laughs> sorry Betty you need to if leave that's what premises. you were looking for <laughs> <laughs> no no I can understand your perspective as well Betty honestly it, it's very very difficult for parents to understand and I had this battle with my dad uh, for a long time in that him being there put a lot of pressure on me and he was not a parent that put any pressure on. He was just like, hey, we're watching some tennis. This is great. Did you have fun? Whatever. You know, he, he was not a pressure putting on sort of parent. He just wanted to support me. And we had endless arguments about it because I was saying it's just because you're my dad. And when you're there, I just really want to play well for you because you're the one who drives me to Corby and to here and is paying for it. And, you know, you've seen what I've been working on in my lessons. So you, I... I need to do that well, otherwise you're going to be a bit disappointed or a bit annoyed or, or whatever. And so it's more I'm building up the pressure of, of the parent being there. So unfortunately, it is just very, very difficult when parents are reacting at the side of the court and players just take it a lot more personally. And you might look at his coach and the coach might do exactly the same thing, but it won't have the same impact as it does when it comes from a parent. And you just got to be aware of that. Um, all I would say, Betty, is just try and be a, a little bit removed from the court. So maybe be one court down. You, you can still see very well. Just don't be kind of right at the back fence, you know, shaking it like a cage fighter or something. <laughs> you know? I, I don't think you're doing that, Betty. Uh, and then I would sit maybe, yeah, one or two courts away. So you've still got a good view. You can see everything that's going on. You can still hear the umpire. If you, if your child wants to, they can look at you. Two courts away? Well, no, it, it depends on where... I'm not going to feel the... like a very supportive parent if I'm two courts away from the action. So, okay, so in, in the UK, a lot of our tournaments are indoors because, oh, well... You look outside and <laughs> that's why you play indoors. Uh, so normally the, the viewing is at the back of the courts. So you can stand right at the back of the court. And yes, it's the best view, but you are almost part of the match because you're leaning over the balcony and you're watching and, and that's fine. And actually, so either be at the corner, you know, so you've got two courts together. So go to one corner so you're just a little bit less involved or go to the back of the other court. Um, and then you're just watching it across a little bit. So you're probably only 10 metres away from where you would be standing normally, but it just gives a little bit of distance and you're not part of the match. You're just viewing the match from a different space. And that's the real thing to to remember is view the match. Don't become part of it. It's strange, isn't it? Because when and look, my fellas are, are four and they, they do a little bit of rugby, do a little bit of tennis, and you feel that you want to be there and give them encouragement and, and scream and say yes. Not like thinking they're going to be the best player in the world, but just to encourage them. But are you saying, maybe this is too young, but are you saying that's 
that's not something to get used to. And actually less is more because as a parent, you feel that more is better to kind of show them they're doing really well and encouraging them. But but you're wanting less is more. Yes, um, less is more when it comes to tennis because they are on their own. It's a problem solving sport and they can become reliant on you. And as I say, think about why you're going to watch. Why are you going to watch? If you are going to get involved in the match, then it, the, the child in that situation will take that as you don't have confidence in them, in their decision-making, in their ability to problem-solve because you're getting involved and telling them what to do and trying to kind of be agitated and that sort of thing. I'm, this isn't Betty's issue. She's not doing this. She's just reacting to, to certain points. But even if it's just positive reaction it still gets the same message across. So I've dealt with parents where there's been a lot of negative reactions and it's been too much for the kid to deal with. And I've said, and this is when I was a young coach and I was just starting out and, and I made a big mistake by saying, cut the negative reactions. You've got to stop it. Like just no, nothing negative, only positive. But then I got a situation where whenever she did something well, they, I mean, they lost it. It was just, they were so <laughs> over the top excited and they were whooping and cheering. It's like 15.30 in the first game. And it's, it's like she just won the tournament. And then if she did something badly, it was just stone cold silence. Oh. So, I mean, so you're That's still getting good. the same message across. Yeah. The kid is still reading that in exactly the same way, right? Um, so it's just trying to be neutral. Look, coaches have to learn it as well. We have to remind ourselves at the side of the court that we're just neutral, you know, nice little bit of encouragement, a little bit of a clap. If, and if they look at you, you, just nod your head because when players look to parents or they look to coaches, they just want a bit of sort of confirmation that, okay, right, you can do this. That's, that's all that you just a nod or a clap or a little fist pump in the air. Even if you're two courts away, you can do that. If they look at you or they look for you, they can do that. What I would say, Betty, get yourself a little bit further away from the court, but tell your son where you're going to be. Say, right, I'm going to pop myself over there so that they can find you if they need you. And again, you can give that reassurance. Uh, if you cannot hide your face, if you've got a bit of a ball bag face like me and the expressions are, <laughs> are quite easy to read, even from two courts away, because that's why we're moving you away from the court. It's just so that your expressions are, are less easy to read. Then... Just go uber fashionable and get some massive sunglasses. Yeah, she did mention sunglasses. I should say, Betty also said as a parent, I found pods 13 and 18 great and learned a lot. I haven't got a clue what we talked about. In, in, <laughs> that, that was so long ago. This is 82. Is it? I think we're recording. This is 82. That was so long ago. So I, I don't know what happened at 13 and 18. And I should also say to Priscilla that if she goes and looks back, I think we put ball sniffing in the title of one of our pods. So yeah. could find out a little bit more about, if she wants to, about sniffing Priscilla's balls. not going to listen again. I think I insulted her <laughs> quite a few times. <laughs> Priscilla, I, why, I'm always doing damage limitation. Priscilla, I apologise. <laughs> no offence. Can I, can I just quickly say that um, we had quite a lot of reaction to the Valentine's Day chat about the fact it's alive and well among four-year-olds. Following Valentine's Day, one of the twins and I actually, we had a chat. We had a, we had a talk. We were, it was the twin who's, oh, no. I know it was the twin who said, when I said, do you play with girls? He just went, disgusting. So we were doing, we we're doing a puzzle, just quietly doing the puzzle, not getting very far. And, and he suddenly said, I don't play with girls. And I was like, 
okay, um, let's just go with this. Obviously he wanted to talk. <laughs> and I said, why not? He said, I'm not allowed to play with them until I'm six. Oh. And I said, okay. I said, but I think you can play with them now. He said, no. Disgusting. <laughs> oh, is it, he's decided that he's not allowed to play with them until he's yeah, six. <laughs> because I, I, was, I was thinking, did someone say that in class? Is it some memos gone round or something? But he has, he's made it very clear that six is the time when he's allowed to play with them. But it's just the way when I said, you know, is there a reason for this? He just went, disgusting. And I was like, <laughs> uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take that. Again, like Valentine's Day, I'm going to take it. He's I four. feel like this might be kind of an ever moving number though. I think when he gets close to six, watch out oh. for that sixth, sixth birthday. If you go, oh, you're going to be six in a month, he might suddenly go, oh, that's a bit soon. You can play with girls now. Yeah, and you'll be thinking, he'll be thinking, no, can't do it. He'll get to seven, then to eight. We just got to make sure that he doesn't get to like twenty. Yeah, I think. I, say, <laughs> I, I, I think again, time is on my side with this. I think <laughs> it was lovely that he felt he wanted a chat and we could talk about issues like this. Um, so it was very nice to have a little chat, the two of us, while his brother was was elsewhere doing something else. But yeah, I, as I say, I wasn't panicking. But just to say that six is the earliest he's going to he's going to consider it because we did have a few people getting in touch that couldn't believe that Valentine's Day was a thing at that age, which it is. Now, we are doing we're recording this or we have recorded this as you listen to a little bit early this week um, because I've got Champions League tomorrow, Chelsea against Bayern Munich and you I'm on Acapulco. Yes, we kick off very shortly indeed. So I need to. Get ready. And as I said before, it is always good. So this is the first year that I'm working on Acapulco and you know, better live up to the expectation. I think you're setting yourself up for a fall. Oh, um, because you said that <laughs> you said that to me a lot. It's going to be great. It's always been great. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> and then you get me sulking. Go, yeah, you're like, I can't believe X, Y and Z pulled out. This was straight sets. I just it's just awful. No, we've so. got Kyrgios playing and think about how well Kyrgios played in Melbourne. He was locked in. He means business this year. He does. And Acapulco he likes Acapulco. Is he well, he loves Acapulco. Because wasn't it last year he just partied every night? Well, the schedule favours him <laughs> because we don't start until the early evening uh, every every evening. So, and then it kind of goes through the night. So it means that he can stay up until 4 or 5 a.m., which is what he likes to do. He can have a full morning sleep until lunchtime and then have a little hit, come play his match, go out until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm not sure whether he's partying or whether he's just up, but uh, he is uh, very active at nighttime in Acapulco. But it suits him <laughs> because he's never going to have to play at 11 a.m. So it just doesn't matter. So you've got Acapulco time this evening. I'm off to do pick up so I've got to get together some snacks because it's just to any parent out there who might be starting school with their children take snacks because that's the only reason they want to see you when they come out the door <laughs> they just go snacks not even hello not even a kiss how you just get snacks and if you haven't I mean it's it's, it's going to be a long long road home so yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm going to go and I'm going to go and gather those and, and they've got to be good ones as well so a lot of thought has to go into this and we will well well we're going to speak loads anyway and uh, you know I'd love people to continue getting in touch if Naomi hasn't offended you all then if we have any if, listeners if, left if you're not too scared to get in touch then website twitter instagram however you want to do it um we'll try and answer the questions with as little offense as possible is that right Naomi? Uh, speak for yourself <laughs> come on guys you know what you sign up for uh, it's it's been a pleasure as always <laughs> enjoy acapulco enjoy the football i will do i'll speak to you soon <laughs> bye bye 